All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are on episode 105 and we are still reading High Rises by Ben Austin. We are on chapter nine, I believe. Eddie Murphy and 21 were James Martin and Eric Davis. Martin was working as a beat cop on the South Side when he issued a couple of traffic tickets to Jesse Jackson Jr., the future disgraced U.S. congressman and son of the famous reverend. After ticketing Jackson, he was transferred to public housing north, the commander at Cabrini Green greeting Martin with bemused laughter. On that very first day, he was in a squad car on Oak Street when rival gangs in the Red High Rises opened fire on one another. A man jogged over from the row houses to join the gunfight, using the police cruiser with the cops inside at his cover. Quote, I never seen anything so ignorant in my entire life, end quote, Martin said. He'd grown up in public housing himself at the South Side's Ida B. Wells homes, but he'd had a peach tree outside the row home he lived in with his grandparents. He graduated high school and attended West Point for a year. Tenants nicknamed him, quote, Eddie Murphy, end quote, because he had a passing resemblance to the comedian and also because he cracked jokes endlessly, even making fun of a guy's clothes or running style as he was clasping cuffs on him. Eric Davis was so fresh-faced when he showed up for work at Cabrini Green in 1987 that residents called him, quote, 21, end quote, for the TV show 21 Jump Street about cops young enough to go undercover as high school students. He lived in a Cabrini high-rise as a child, in the 1960s, when his family first made the trek north from South Carolina. He went on to become a prep basketball and football, football star in the uptown neighborhood. And then as a backup point guard, he co-captained the University of Houston basketball team, Phi Slamma Jamma, that featured Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler and lost in the 1982 Final Four to Michael Jordan's University of North Carolina Tar Heels. As a cop, Davis wanted to serve as his for, at his former home. Crack cocaine was just starting to ravage the neighborhood. Mothers, long the cornerstone of the community, were disappearing for days, handing off their children for others to watch. In Cabrini Green's white high-rises, a renegade faction of gangster disciples brought drugs from suppliers not sanctioned by the gang's leadership and kept the profits. Across the dividing line of Division Street, you didn't have just disciples fighting Cobra Stones and Vice Lords but also GD hit squads firing at one another with automatic assault rifles. And the disciples in the whites warred as well with young men in a rival gang who lived a couple of blocks away in Evergreen Terrace Apartments, a small low-income development next to Marshall Field Garden Apartments on Sedgwick Street. As a way to talk to the kids at Cabrini Green, and as a response to the gangster rap that was then popular, Davis, Martin, and another officer formed a rap group of their own, calling it the Slick Boys, slang for undercover cops. A sometime drug dealer from Cabrini, Pete Keller, known as Queso, helped them with lyrics, which were part rap battle rejoinder and part public service announcement. Quote, C is for CHA, which really lacks. D is for the dealers of drugs like crack. E is for the end of the EE economy. F is for the fathers that I'd rather see. End quote. The media embraced the story of the police trying to save lives through music, with headlines such as, quote, cops stay on the beat, end quote. The Slip Boys delivered talks at public schools about the dangers of gangs and drugs. They worked nights at Cabrini and then by day traveled around the city and later the country to deliver their musical message about the efforts needed to turn around blighted communities. They hired dancers and roadies from public housing. 
They filmed a music video. A movie was written based on their lives, hinging on an invented beef between a fictional drug lord at Cabrini Green and 21. The two presented as childhood friends now on opposite sides of the law and the mic. In the summer of 1991, Eddie Murphy and 21 learned that a security guard in one of the Cabrini high rises had kidnapped a 13 year old girl from the building. Michael Keith was 26 and had to work for the private security firm for half a year. The girl was Veronica McIntosh, J.R. Fleming's baby sister, who, along with their mother, had moved back to Cabrini Green that June. At 1017 North Larrabee, where they now stayed, Veronica jumped rope with other girls late into the night. One afternoon, she and her 14-year-old cousin were in front of another Cabrini high-rise when Keith pulled up alongside the girls and offered them a ride. They knew him from the building, so after hesitating for a moment, they climbed in. Keith drove a white Oldsmobile Cutlass, a two-door coupe, and Veronica shimmied into the back while her cousin sat up front. For a while, Keith was chatty and amiable, pointing out stores and buildings as he drove them around the near north side. It was when the girls said they were ready to go home that he turned strange. Between long silences, he told them that wasn't what they wanted. At a stoplight, Veronica's cousin jumped out. But as Veronica was sliding out as well, Keith grabbed her and pulled the door shut. She turned to face him. He held a gun pointed at her face. Over the next 20 hours, with Veronica crouched against the red leather back seat, Keith drove silently. He parked somewhere secluded, climbed into the back, rape her, and drive some more. Veronica hardly knew the city, so she had no sense of where they were. During the night, Keith, sto Keith stopped outside a house in a residential neighborhood and tried to get her to come inside, but she clutched the seat and screamed, and he gave up. Later, Veronica learned that it was Keith's home on the south side. She blamed herself for not going inside with him. J.R. had been with the girl when Veronica was abducted, but he since tracked down Keith's home address through the security firm. If she had just gone inside, Veronica told herself in the days and decades to come, then J.R. might have saved her from a dozen more hours of hell. It wasn't until the next day, with Keith bleary and muttering, that Veronica slipped out of his reach and fled the moving car. She ran away along a crowded street. She looked up and saw the Cabrini high rises in the distance and headed toward them. Keith didn't return to his house, but he did come to work to pick up his paycheck, and Eddie Murphy and 21 were waiting for him. Years later, after Keith had served a 14-year prison sentence, Veronica confronted him in a Southside diner. Up to then, she avoided talking about what she referred to only as, quote, the incident, end quote. She lost her ability to trust people. She believed all men were devious, and she had trouble leaving her own children alone, even with their father. For a while, she popped pills and turned violent. With her sister by her side, Veronica asked Keith how he could have done what he did to her. She was 13, a baby. She still had dolls lined up in her bedroom. He'd stolen her childhood. Keith didn't apologize or ask for forgiveness. Rather, he smiled coyly as he reflected on their hours together. He said he'd really wanted her. And since it was public housing, he took her. And I'm sure that there were countless Veronica's and one of the things that we read about in Women Racing Class when we 
uh, read the chapter that spoke about the sexual assault and rape, sexual violence that black women deal with. One of the things that was pointed out is that black women were so vulnerable because the the communities that they were in, the neighborhoods that they were in, the people that they came from were seen to be people who didn't matter, uh, were seen to be communities that didn't matter and were seen to be neighborhoods that didn't matter and that empowered people who wanted to do those things, who wanted to commit these sexual acts of violence and wanted to be able to try to get away with them. And, and that is, that is the type of, that is the type of, they say actions speak louder than words. And we've read through here for, again, more than 160 pages that the actions of the Chicago Housing Authority, the actions of the politicians in Chicago, the actions of the state of Illinois, the government in the state of Illinois, the government in the, the country was one of of lacking of care or lacking of empathy, lacking of sympathy for people who are poor, for people who are black, for people who lived in these communities. And that signals to people who are predators that that's where they can go to prey on people. And the same thing, the same thing can be articulated when it comes to the guns being shipped into these areas, the the drugs being shipped into these areas. The, these, the government, the city are all saying through their actions that they don't care about what goes on into this area. And, and the, that lack of care is what breeds or what leads predators to go into that area and prey upon people. Uh, and, and it's, and <clears throat> okay, let's move on to the next passage. Dolores Wilson. For Dolores Wilson and the other public housing residents training for self-management, it felt like they had enrolled in school. Quote, what we did took longer than college, end quote, Dolores would say. They spent hours in workshops and evening sessions studying best practices for screening tenants and for conserving heat and electricity. They learned how to read a lease. They reviewed the endless rules and regulations issued by the CHA and HUD. They went over how to form committees, build vendors and fill out tax returns. Quote, I think I came to know more about housing than Jack Kemp did, end quote, Dolores said, referring to the NFL quarterback turned Republican senator turned secretary of housing. They went on weekend retreats outside Chicago, where a trainer taught them leadership skills. As managers, they couldn't lower their powers over others. They needed to understand that it was better to listen than to speak all the time. In their new positions, they would have to inspire their neighbors. Quote, if no one is following, you aren't a leader. End quote, the teacher repeated. But it was also going to be up to them to lay down the law to put an end to illegal activities in their buildings. They role played how to resolve conflicts and also to evict tenants whose conflicts couldn't be resolved. The Metropolitan Planning Council called this effort, quote, empowerment training, end quote, teaching residents how to become, quote, participants in the process of managing their buildings and deciding their future, end quote. To model this self to model this self-determination, the MPC hired Bertha Gilkey, a resident of a public housing complex in St. Louis. In 1969, Gilkey, 20 and a single mother, organized a system-wide rent strike that lasted nine months, and she went on to run the tenant group at Corin Gardens that took over custodial and management duties from the St. Louis Housing Authority. 
Cochrane Gardens, excuse me, have been a lot like Cabrini Green, a budding, a gentrifying city center. It was seen as a, quote, war zone, end quote, with, quote, rooftop snipers and drug wars, end quote. But under resident management, the rehab departments filled to near capacity, crime fell, and rent collection doubled. Dolores liked Gilkey instantly. The sessions the St. Louis activists led were as much self-help revival meetings as there were classes in operations and finance. Gilkey's voice was husky and operatic. Her hair was cut into an asymmetrical bob. Her eyebrows arched in a look of perpetual defiance. She would boom that the tenants had been mistreated and misunderstood for too long, dismissed as pushers, pimps, and dope fiends, as if the poor were without dreams or aspirations. She made the Chicagoans believe in themselves and their desire, their right, to run their own buildings. She chosen against being on welfare, she explained to her trainees, a personal act of willful defiance. And she expected as much from them. Quote, what I'm saying is that there is a new day that you will no longer be crying in the wind. End quote, she pronounced. Quote, 1230 Burling is going to be a decent, safe, clean and sanitary place to live. End quote. Gilkey would bring them into a tight circle, all of them clasping hands and lead them in song. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Quote, she was revolutionary, end quote, Dolores would say. Quote, when Bertha spoke, she made you listen. You had to, end quote. Gilkey emphasized that outsiders wanted them to fail, expected it. Others have been enriching themselves on their backs and wouldn't give that up without a fight. Quote, there's big money in poor folks, end quote, she preached. She challenged them to look over the bloated staffs at the Chicago Housing Authority, the deputy deputies and the executive executives. She said that's where the finances meant to improve their buildings have been going for decades. Housing authorities were paid by HUD for units, whether they were vacant or filled. So the agencies had no incentive to make their developments better. The CHA have failed to carry out its charge of providing safe harbor for those overlooked and exploited by the private real estate market. It was up to them, the tenants, to change things. Otherwise, they will continue to live in degradation or worse on the streets because cities were going to generate the will eventually to demolish their rundown projects. She's seen it happen in St. Louis with Pruitt Igo, but she was going to show them how to succeed. Quote, the power to control your own destiny is freedom. End quote. She proclaimed. Then they joined together and shouting, quote, I'm fired up. I'm tired and I can't take it anymore. End quote. Dolores and her neighbors were fired up, but they were also overwhelmed. The task ahead seemed both too tangled up in endless details and too abstract. When they felt about ready to quit, Gilkey took them on a trip to St. Louis. Fifty Chicagoans got off the bus at Cochrane Gardens and couldn't believe that what they were seeing was public housing. Under a tenant-led renovation, Cochrane Gardens had added new townhomes to the tracks of concrete that had separated its towers. The high-rise units were rehabbed, the buildings updated and outfitted with balconies overlooking a communal courtyard. Everything was pristine, even the incinerator room. Dolores, wearing her Harold Washington button, declared it unbelievable. Cora Moore nodded in approval, envisioning the possibilities at 1230 North Burley. In the spring of 1988, after 18 months of classes, the trainees from 1230 North Burling were honored at a graduation ceremony held at a downtown Chicago bank. Many of the residents put on their Sunday best, pink and yellow dresses and towering hats rigged by brims as wide as umbrella 
Dolores covered her mouth as she laughed and wept. Quote, I can't succeed without you and more people like you, end quote, Vince Lane told the graduates. Dolores wrote a letter to the newspapers reporting on their achievement. Quote, we have learned many things about tennis management, end quote, she noted. Quote, now we must put it to work and open the minds of all residents if we are to succeed, end quote. In 1990, the leaders of 1230 North Burling were designated interim managers of their building. Then in 1992, after seven years of preparation, the 1230 North Burling Resident Management Corporation took over an annual budget of $6 million and became responsible not only for providing security, but also for collecting rents, screening tenants, and maintaining the property. In a written statement, its members declared that their mission to, quote, provide management programs and services, social, educational, cultural, and spiritual, to better the lives and living conditions of the 1230 North Burling residents, end quote. Dolores designed their personalized letterhead, a rough ink drawing of the file cabinet high rise, the windows colored in to highlight the white facade, the motto, quote, faith brought us this far, end quote, stretched across the roof and down one side of the tower. Dolores served as the group's president in unpaid position and Core Moore ran the day to day operations as the head manager. They created a seven member elected board of directors and hired a full time pay staff of seven, which included a leasing clerk, an accountant and janitors. They recruited two residents from each floor to serve as floor captains and numerous other tenants joined the building's 15 different committees. Wilson required members of the management team to look respectable since they were now representatives of the building. Quote, I'm not talking about going to the mailboxes and high heels and makeup, end quote, she said. Quote, you just have to be decent. Don't come to the lobby looking like hell's a popping, end quote. Potted plants were placed by the mailboxes and visitors now needed to be buzzed in to enter. The managers inspected every apartment and began the eviction process for tenants who didn't follow the rules. The Lord said they had to keep out, quote, undesirables, end quote. They started a nursery in the building, covering cinder block walls with yellow and blue hearts. They opened the laundromat on the second floor, negotiating a 60-40 profit split with the company leasing the washers and dryers, the tenants selling tokens out of the management office, so no money accumulated in the machines. Quote, Cabrini tenants a wash is still another success, end quote, ran a headline. They operated social service programs for young people and senior citizens. They partnered with a nonprofit to build a new $60,000 playground for the hundreds of children who lived in the tower. People from other Cabrini high-rises started approaching Dolores, asking if she could get them an apartment in the building, but she didn't want anyone saying she played favorites and she referred them to the admissions committee. The building was described in the press as, quote, a ray of hope, end quote, quote, a shining example of grassroots empowerment, end quote. For Dolores, the highest praise came from Washington, D.C., quote, President Bush named our building a model for the nation, end quote, she announced. Uh, and that is the end of chapter nine. That brings us to the beginning of chapter 10. And we will start chapter 10 on this episode since we're only about 20 minutes in. What stands out to me from that passage is the success of the success that was reached once an avenue was made for the people in public housing to have self-determination. What stands out to me is. Is that this is 
the 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 model that they used, the things that they did were things that could have been done 10 years earlier or 20 years earlier or uh, 30 years earlier. This could have been a model that was used from the initial onset of the public housing being created. And I do believe in the concept that you live and you learn. Uh, but one of the things we've seen in here is that in St. Louis, this was something that had already been tried. They It took them 18 months of training before they began to do it. Uh, and so that meant that for at least over a year and a half in another place, this was something that had already happened, something that had already taken place. And uh, far too often, people who are in uh, situations where they're either being oppressed or being marginalized or being subjugated are looked at as if they don't have the power to change these things or they don't have the power to fix these things. But in truth, they are not being given an avenue to be able to change these things and fix these things because there are people who benefit from them being subjugated, from them being marginalized, from them being oppressed, uh, because there are people who benefit from them being poor, like was stated in here that it's big money and poor people. And that's just something that uh, is important to to keep in mind when we speak about why certain environments exist while they in the manner that they exist and a lot of times it's because somebody is profiting off of them existing in that way and because the people who are in those environments have not been given an avenue or an opportunity to for self-determination chapter 10 how horror works J.R. fleming after J.R. fleming was expelled from high school in 1990 for punching the assistant principal, his mother packed his suitcase and put him on a Greyhound bus headed for Alabama. No way he was going to hang around Cabrini Green all day, not when they were talking about a murder epidemic in Chicago. J.R. had started spending time with a girl named Donna who lived on the third floor of his high-rise. He was 17 and she was 15 and pregnant with their child, but J.R.'s mother still sent him away to his father. Willie Sr. was living in Alexander City, a textile town in Tallapoosa County, about halfway between Birmingham and Auburn. When J.R. stepped off the bus, his dad was there to greet him, standing alongside the white sheriff. The two men drove J.R. directly to the police station and showed him the jail. Quote, I hope you're not trouble, end quote, the sheriff drawled. He wouldn't be, J.R. promised. J.R.'s sister had always been, quote, dad hogs, end quote. Whenever Willie Sr. visited Chicago, dominating his every walking moment, Excuse me, excuse me. Sorry about that. J.R. sisters had always been dad hogs whenever Willie Sr. visited Chicago, dominating his every waking moment. Now, J.R. had the man to himself. He was put to work doing carpentry and landscaping, but he also passed the days riding around the county with his father along the river and lake and passed the many sewing factories for Russell Sporting Goods, which hadn't yet moved its manufacturing first to Mexico and then to Honduras. They shot pool together and shot guns at a range and drank in bars. His father talked about his experiences in and out of the military, both legal and extra legal. J.R. listened as his father swapped tales with a group of other Vietnam veterans, the men somehow seeming to run what they called Alex City. J.R. turned 18 and his father made him sign a selective service card. But he also told his son that government work probably wasn't for him. Quote, be your own man, end quote, he chided. And J.R. tattooed on his bicep a scratchy M-O-M. It looked like mine, but stood for my own man. When J.R. returned to Cabrini Green after five months, his life there seemed different, but also much the same. He partied with his ski love crew in 1017 North Larrabee, 
but he had a baby now with Donna, a Sunday named Jonathan. He played in basketball games and in the softball league, leaping to catch fly balls in front of teammates who were hunched in standing slumbers from heroin highs. But the dreams of college sports that had defined his life up to then were over. What JR decided he needed to do was make some money. A guy named Joe Peary, who worked at a local youth organization, was impressed by JR's brashness and intelligence. He helped JR land his first paycheck job, sorting packages by zip codes for UPS. JR lasted less than three months at the job. The minimum wage was then $4.25. He couldn't buy Pampers or feed his son on $4.25 an hour, and he sure couldn't afford all the other things he wanted for himself. JR was obsessed with cars, and he'd always been drawn to technology, trying to test whatever gadget was new to the market, whether it was a computer, a PDA, a pager, or a video camera. But the taxes were what sealed it for him. When he got that first UPS paycheck, and saw that $11 had been withheld, he was furious. He could make more money selling weed in three days than he did in an entire week sorting mail. He decided to deal crack. The guys around him who had the cars and the game systems, who were eating like kings, that's what they did. JR asked around, but no one at Cabrini would put him on count, giving him the product to sell. Even from Alabama, Willie Sr. still had clouded Cabrini, and he'd asked the local heads to keep his son out of it. G-Ball, JR's cousin from the Castle crew, told him, quote, this is what I do so you don't have to do it, end quote. JR was anything if not persistent. He convinced one of his ski love guys to give him some work so long as they split the profits and word never got back to anyone at Cabrini. The friend had gotten a secret stash from a liquor store owner on Larrabee who said he got into drugs from a cop who worked on the west side. Of course. JR headed way up north, far from Cabrini, walking a block that looked to him like a good place to sell drugs without anyone from home finding out. He'd worked less than a day when the police nabbed him. They'd been staking out the street, building a case against the Cobra Stones there, and then this dumb, loud-mouthed kid showed up. If they hadn't arrested him, they told J.R., he'd likely have been killed that night. The cops didn't include J.R. in their larger criminal indictment against the Cobra Stones, and as a first-time offender, he avoided jail. That was the end to his brief career as a crack dealer. In little time, J.R. devised a new money-making scheme. It was the spring of 1991, and people in Chicago were fiending as well for Michael Jordan and the Bulls. The team had just swept the Pistons in the playoffs after losing to Detroit each of the past three years, and the Bulls were on their way to their first-ever title. Jordan, too, was ascendant, appearing in ads for McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Gatorade, Wheaties, Ballpark Franks, Ed's Shaving Cream, Haynes Underwear, Nike, and Chevrolet. The basketball movie, Heaven is a Playground, filmed on location at Cabrini Green, was about to hit theaters, and Jordan had initially signed on to play the lead, pulling out after he'd become too famous. When the Bulls beat the Lakers for the championship that June, many of the stores alone lay be were looted, people in their revelry and despair firing off guns, smashing windows, and taking whatever goods they could carry. Several of the local shop owners were Jordian, from the Middle East country of Jordan, that is, and by, the, and by then, fixtures in the neighborhoods. But when one of them tried to protect his business, brandishing a gun in front of his store, someone in the melee took the weapon and beat him with it. What JR did was use his unemployment money from the UPS job, plus a little weed money, 
and buy a stack of Bootleg Bulls Championship t-shirts from a vendor on Roosevelt Road. Back home and around the Gold Coast, he resold the shirts for twice what he paid, increasing his stock with each re-up. A man unpossessed of an inside voice, incapable of speaking softly, JR was a natural salesman. Quote, three for 25, got to sell today, end quote. He bully, boast, sweet weedle. He didn't take no for an answer, wouldn't let consumers turn around. He'd do anything, he said, to get the dollar from their pocket. Like any great salesman, what JR really peddled at all times was himself, and in that product he believed spectacularly. JR resembled the Bulls' backup forward Cliff Levingston with the same deep set, beaded eyes and wide mouth smile, the same broad shoulder build, and linen headed top with a high top fade. Hey, high top fave. Leonine, excuse me. And Leonine headed top with the high top fade. At clubs around the north side, JR pretended that he was Levingston's son and he'd get in without a cover charge or score free drinks. When the Bulls were in the playoffs the following season and still weeks away from their second title, JR went all in on the quote, repeat, end quote, merchandise, the hats and shirts with the paired rings or trophies. To increase his profits, he paid off the delivery man who brought the goods to the vendor on Roosevelt Road, giving him $700 for the name and address of the New York distributor. From there, he connected directly with the wholesaler in Malaysia. He found another supplier who sold the hologram stickers that signified an NBA licensed product, affixing them to the knockoff gear. He hired guys from his ski love crew, each of them pushing a shopping cart that had been converted into a rolling sports goods store with wood beams set up on three sides to display the wares. They sold the Bulls merchandise by the Rock and Roll McDonald's on Michigan Avenue's Magnificent Mile and outside the near north side's actual sporting goods superstore. JR had recently joined the Young Democrats of Cook County, showing up afternoons to clean out the ward offices or hall mats for the Jesse White Tumblers. When police officers told him to move along from wherever he set up shop, he recite the peddling laws he'd memorized. When that didn't work, he let the police know that they could contact Jesse White, Alderman the Terrace, or even the mighty boss of the ward himself, George Dunn. All right, and that brings us to the end of that passage and a changing of the theme in the chapter. And I think what stands out to me again in this chapter too is self-determination, is that... Uh, once Jr. found something that he could do, found something that he could be incentivized to do that uh, that he he obviously, as we've read multiple times through here, was an intelligent young man, was a, a motivated young man. And he clearly wasn't somebody who was because somebody was looking out for him because he had a father who was looking out for him. Uh, he stayed out of a gang because of his dad advising him because he had a mother who was looking out for him. Uh, when he got into too much trouble, she had him go stay with his dad who helped to be an influence for him uh, because he had a child that uh, burden of responsibility made it so that he wanted to to work and to, to find it and to find a job. Uh, the, but again, not having livable wages made it so that he fell back to being a product of, of his environment and tried to sell crack. Uh, luckily, he didn't end up Becoming going to prison for selling crack, and he 
learned his lesson from it and he found something he continued to look until he found something else that he could be successful in and once he was successful in that he went all the way with it and it's just another reminder that when these avenues and opportunities are given to people in these situations uh that they can rise above the cir- the circumstances that they're in but what's important is to realize is that Every person does not get those opportunities. Every person does not get those avenues. And we have to do the job of trying to provide more of those opportunities and avenues for people. Uh, And so we're a little bit over 30 minutes here. So we're going to wrap up this episode and we'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Rock for Reading Daily.